Our text this morning, beloved, is Luke 2, 8 to 14, continuing where Marty read earlier. Marty read Luke 2, 1 to 7. I will pick up at verse 8 and read for us Luke 2, 8 to 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I suspect this season you have received a Christmas card that said on the front, peace, or peace on earth. Yes? That's great. That message comes right out of the text in verse 14. The angels announcing peace on earth. But really, where's the peace? I wonder how many people see Christmas banners that say peace and feel a real twinge of cynicism. Where's the peace? Let's suppose you were born around the time of Jesus. Here's what you would have experienced. Within two years of Jesus' birth, King Herod had ordered the slaughter of all the baby boys born in that time period. No peace there. Jesus himself was hunted down from the first of his public ministry. Hunted down. 30 years after, 40 years after Jesus died, the temple in Jerusalem raised to the ground by the Romans. No peace there. Shortly thereafter began persecution of Christians. First century, second century, third century. Christians are persecuted today in this world. Where's the peace, beloved? This is not a stellar start to peace on earth. Nations still clash, friends squabble, families have conflict. We're at war with ourselves with indwelling sin. So, were the angels wrong? Was the mission of Jesus to bring peace on earth ultimately frustrated? Was Chris, Christmas a failure? That's my sermon question today. Was Christmas a failure? And you can't believe, you can't blame some people for seeing this message as a sentimental folly, a fairy tale. There's no peace on earth. So to understand what the angels meant... And to experience peace for yourself, let's ask three questions. Number one, where does the announcement come from? 
Luke 2.13 says a multitude of the heavenly host are announcing peace. It's actually the heavenly army. The word for host was a military term. It is the heavenly army that is announcing peace. Peace on earth is heaven's declaration. That's because we're not capable of peace. The only time there was shalom among human beings on the earth was in the Garden of Eden before sin entered the world. That was the only time we had true and exhaust extensive peace on this earth. The history of mankind is the chronicle of anything but peace. Right? A culture comes to live with itself and sooner or later some bully comes along and wants to take him over for his own gain. So Bible believers find in the claims of humanism that man is basically good, we, we just find it impossible to believe that based on history alone. Human beings are not inherently good. That's why there's no peace on earth. So beloved, what is significant about the fact that heaven is declaring peace on earth? Well, it's simply this. The message is not first about peace with your fellow man, it is about heaven's peace with man. Heaven's enmity with human beings. God is not at peace with humanity. Dare we use the unpolitically correct word, God is angry with humanity. I know that's not popular, but I'm going to assume you don't believe in God. You're skeptical of the Christian religion, but I'll ask you this question. Do you get angry? Sure. What's at the heart of the things that anger you, that infuriate you, that frustrate you? What's at the heart of that? It's when something is not the way it's supposed to be. Politics, relationships. We all, you don't have to believe in God to be furious at injustice. Lying, stealing, abuse, indiscriminate harm to human beings. Well, that means you're pretty close to the heart of God. To be angry when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Listen to King David's description of one aspect of God's heart on this from Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate, strong word, you hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. So should you. So should I. The difference between you and me and God is that when we make judgments on these things, we bring our own flawed, sinful, frail bias into those judgments. God judges these things perfectly, righteously, and truly. Psalm 9, 7, and 8. The Lord sits on his, it, the Lord, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He's established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. That means the question you must ask and answer. Boys and girls, you've had lots of tests in school. You'll probably have lots of tests 
maybe till you're 22 years old and beyond. You'll take lots and lots of tests. This is the one question you've got to answer in your life. The one question is Psalm 76, 7. Who can stand before God when he's angry? You've got to answer that question. Who can stand before God when he is angry? God is at enmity with his creatures, and it's personal. Who can stand before God? See, sin is an affront to God personally. We refuse to thank him for his blessings. We suppress the truth of his glory. We seek to live for inferior glories. We don't stand in awe of him. Sin is personal. It's a personal affront to him. Who can stand before him when he's angry? This is why there's no peace when heaven looks at humanity. Paul captures it this way in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And worst of all, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Beloved, we have all given God ample opportunity to have a case against us. And the fact that heaven pronounces peace means that God is initiating the ceasefire. Suppose you're in combat. You are fighting for your life. And the enemy has you by the throat. And it's only a matter of time till you are destroyed by the enemy. And wonder of wonders, the enemy stands up and says, peace, ceasefire, the battle's over. You would be amazed and stunned. That's why we who know Jesus are amazed and stunned at the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God. God is announcing the ceasefire. God is declaring peace. What is he saying? I want us reconciled. I want you to know me. I want you to know my love. I want you to know my peace. I want us on speaking terms. That's what's happening this amazing day when the angels are appearing to the shepherds. God is declaring the peace. Second thing to understand if we want to experience peace on earth, how the announcement comes. We're told the angels and the glory of God appear to the shepherds, and what was their response? Verse 9. They were afraid, literally fearful with great fear. Rightly so. The revelation of God's glory makes sinners conscious of how unfit for heaven they are. You have a vivid picture of this in the Old Testament. God has gathered his people Israel at Mount Sinai. The mountain, because of the presence of God, the mountain is shaking. Fire, smoke, thunder. It's like, don't come near. Right. The revelation of the holiness of God, the glory of God, is too much for humans to stand in front of. And yet it is in the face of that reality, the holiness of God, the unapproachableness of God, that the angels say what? Don't fear. 
And basically, these words begin a message that you can track right through the gospel. Don't fear. It's said to Zechariah, it's said to Mary, it's said to the shepherds, all the way to the women at the resurrection and the disciples. Don't fear. It's just, it's wonderful. In fact, as, as you look at, the, at you know, Jesus asked a lot of questions. He was asked a lot of questions. For my two cents, the two that jump off the page at me as I read the Gospels again and again, the two that jump off the page, the two questions that seem to be pressed most personally into my soul are, why do you doubt? Why are you afraid? And Jesus wants you to ask yourself the answer to those questions. Why do you doubt? Why are you afraid? The implication is what? You shouldn't be. And what Jesus is doing is he is requiring you to reason from the greater to the lesser. He wants you to argue it out, reason it out from the greater to the lesser. Now, if you're a mathematician, this is called a subset. So take, uh, take a big circle of something, and a circle inside it that's smaller is a subset. Reasoning from the greater to the lesser, somebody invites you to lunch after, after church. They say, you're going to need $5. Can you afford it? I can. Why? Because you have a $20 bill in your wallet. You have reason from the greater, if I have $20, to the lesser, I can certainly afford a lunch for five. Reasoning from the greater to the lesser. When Jesus asks you, why do you doubt? Why are you afraid? He is saying, think about the character of God. He is sovereign he is good, he's in control of everything, and he loves you, then you shouldn't doubt or you shouldn't fear. I, I have to do that work in my life, in my soul, because I'm a man that has to battle fear. It's just part of my weak, frail constitution. I've got to do that work. Reason from the greater to the lesser. I don't have time to unpack it, it's a sermon all in itself. But think about the way the Apostle John puts this in his first epistle, 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That caused my heart to seek to be filled more and more with the love of Jesus that is the only reality on this earth to cast out my fears. Who doesn't want their fears replaced with joy? And this is where the angels go. Verse 10, I bring you good news of great joy. <laughs> joy that spiritual darkness is going to be pushed back. That the unseen glory of God will be seen in Jesus Christ. That God has come near and it is safe that the riches of heaven are ours freely in Jesus joy that someone is going to swallow up death for all time. So how do you understand, how do you make sense of this peace on earth declaration? Consider where it came from. It's heaven's declaration of peace with us. Consider uh, to whom it came, and finally, why the announcement came, and that's verse 11. A Savior has been born. A mediator from God to make peace. And beloved, this is the glory of God. 
that God is at one and the same time just, he must punish every transgression. God must, to be true to himself, give people what they deserve. Every sin ever committed in human history will be punished. God is just, and God has the power to justify the ungodly. This is the glory of God shown to us at Christmas. Whoever claimed to make you an unholy person perfectly fit for a holy God? Who claimed to do that? Who claimed to do something so that you could look a, a holy, just, perfect, righteous God in the eye who requires of you absolute perfection? Whoever claimed to fit you for that person? Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ, the Son who came to die and live for us as our substitute. Jesus Christ came to live the perfect life you cannot live to offer you that as a gift. And he died the death your sins deserve, the sentence of condemnation he bore in his body. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1.20, he made peace through the blood of his cross. There is peace with God through the death of Jesus, the blood of his cross. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. But that raises a question. If what I said is true about God, that every sin must be punished, how does God not count your trespasses against you? They just don't disappear. He doesn't put them in the trash can. It doesn't go down the incinerator or the kitchen sink. Where do your sins go? He must count them to another person's record. That's why verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5 tells us he did that in Jesus. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. The perfectly righteous Jesus became sin on the cross so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who knew that from this quiet, peaceful manger in Bethlehem would come one who, in the words of John Newton's hymn, Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder, would hush the law's loud thunder. What's the law's loud thunder? That's the law of God's ability to scream at you, you owe God this, 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 this. If you want to be in the presence of God, you cannot do this, 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 this. The law of God, beloved, I don't know what you've done to your conscience, but the law of God is screaming at you its demands. You must, you must, you can't, you can't. If you want to know God, this is what's required. Do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. The moment Jesus died... Because he kept the law of God perfectly, he met the demands of it, and he paid the penalty of it. The moment he died and the moment you trust him, the, the law goes, it's silenced. The law can't accuse you. It's accused Jesus in your place. He hushed the law's loud thunder. You're saved by grace. You're saved by Jesus. You're saved through his kindness. You're saved through his blood, not your own. That's the gospel. That's the good news the angels are talking about. And, and, and you say, well, how does that become mine? Well, that's this phrase, 
peace among men with whom he is pleased. What pleases God? Faith. Take him in his word, believing what he says, trusting his promise. God, if you promise to reconcile me to yourself through Jesus, if you promise it, I accept it, I believe it, I rest upon it. Faith, that's what pleases God, and he is pleased to give it to anyone who asks for it. Don't leave today without this faith. Your sins have to go somewhere. Jesus will take them. He will forgive you. His blood will cleanse you. Believe it. That's what pleases God, believing this magnificent promise. I want to take a couple of minutes of application. Don't be surprised if when you have experienced peace with God by trusting him, that you don't feel what we might call emotional peace. And let me explain it at least for one, from one perspective. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. And he's pleased to wield that sword in your life and mine, in love and grace, to begin to cut away at your false peace. There's false peace lurking in all of our hearts. And you can never ultimately experience the fruit of the Spirit, peace, unless you are dealing with those false pieces. Jesus wants, he loves you. And so the sword comes into our lives. And what do I mean by a false trust? I mean it's anything that you base your well-being upon. Anything you say, I need this in order to be secure, safe, confident, stable, intact. This is what makes my world good. That's a false trust. False trusts work like this. They make promises. Have this and you'll be happy. You'll be at peace. There's usually an element of truth in that promise because the things that we make our false trusts often are good in and of themselves, but they're never designed to be the thing on which you're basing your ultimate peace. And they lie to you. The lie is this. God himself is insufficient to give you life, intactness, security, significance, without the addition of something else. There's a lie in your false trust. And the other thing to note about your false trust, beloved, is the, it's driven by the fear of losing something. That's the connection between the fear in the story and the peace. You and I don't have peace in our hearts. We might have peace with God in the gospel, but we don't have peace in our hearts because our false trusts are dominating the turf of our hearts. And true peace and false trusts don't live together. The one is gobbling up the other in your heart and in my heart. It's the fear of losing something that drives our, our false peace. Let me give you some examples. Approval. That's a false peace for some of us. If I'm getting along with everybody, life's good. What is that driven by? That's driven by the fear of not being liked. See, there's, at the heart of that idol, there's a fear. <sighs> what if people don't accept me? That's not a struggle for some of you. Some of you struggle with control. What's your fear? I fear losing control. I fear not being able to control everything. Some of you aren't control freaks. You want to be right. What do you fear? Obviously, being in the wrong. 
your, your life at peace when you're right. You're striving to be right. You need to prove to people that you're right. You manipulate. It's subtle. It's that. You need to be right. False peace. You fear being seen as wrong. Some of you, your false peace is comfort. Everything you do is to be comfortable. What do you fear? Being uncomfortable. You have all these props in your life to make sure you're comfortable. And you're angry at people that threaten your comfort, however you measure it. Some of you, your false peace is being competent. What do you fear? Being seen as incompetent. Your world crumbles when that competence is threatened. False peace. Some of you, your, your false peace is being anonymous. You don't want to be known. You don't want to be exposed. You don't want Christian fellowship. You want to be anonymous, a sort of an island unto yourself. What do you fear? Being exposed. You're protecting that. It's a false peace. How about pleasure idols? What do you fear? Pain. It goes on and on and on. Beloved, this is, these, this is the failure in life, not Christmas. That's the failure, our false peace. And Christ has come not just to bring peace with God, but to put your soul in a place where, constrained by his love, filled with his presence, governed by his word and spirit, you're not tyrannized by these false pieces. That's good news. That's joy. And that frees you to be a blessing to other people because every one of these things make you focused on yourself, which is the opposite of Christmas. He came and humbled himself to get focused on our needs. You can be free from these. There's work to be done. You've got to get before Jesus and ask him to expose these. Take the sword, the sword of your word, the sword of friends, the sword of people who know me well. Show me my false trust. And then Jesus, fill my heart with your love, perfect love. Cast out fear. That's another sermon for another day, but go to that 1 John 4 passage and do some work in it. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for heaven's declaration of peace on earth. You initiated it. You sent your Son to make peace with us through the blood of his cross. And thank you for taking his sword and cutting away at our false trusts. They're bad for us. They don't leave us trusting you, and you're the only trustworthy one. And so send us Jesus, send us his spirit, fill our hearts with his love, that we might know this true peace, knowing Jesus, knowing his peace, and then being instruments in his hand, bringing blessing and joy and peace to others. What a glory. Be glorified in our lives. Be glorified in Wallace, for Jesus' sake. Amen.